We do preach verse by verse at Acts Reformed Church by the grace of God. This morning we come to a passage and specifically two verses that could be seen as controversial. And throughout the history of the church, there's been different takes. So if you're here, we're going to settle that today. <laughs> if you were aware of my thoughts and prayers as I came up here and Brother James was speaking, my prayer was literally, Lord, help me, as Peter said, right? So that we would be um, honoring God and that he would guard me from error as I preach from this passage this morning. We are going to <clears throat> Romans 9, verses 9 through 13. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 9, verses 9 through 13. The inerrant, authoritative word of God reads as follows. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. That it corrects us that it instructs us in our thinking, in our beliefs, and ultimately in our behavior. Therefore, we pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, may grant us understanding about the great mystery of election, the fact that you elect your people because you are good, because you are gracious, because you are loving, and not because we've done anything to deserve your favor. Lord God, if that were so, in seeking your favor by our merit, no one would be able to stand before you and live. Lord, provide us a heart that is humble and willing to learn today from your scriptures. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I've titled today's sermon, God's Purpose in Election Will Stand. The purpose that God has set from all eternity in electing his people will stand. <clears throat> the great R.C. Sproul once said, quote, We have to determine our theology from the word of God and not from what we feel. Unquote. The passage before us today can be difficult to understand, granted, but it can be misunderstood if we have preconceived ideas of what we think about God. And we need to deal with the text for what it says and not based on what we feel. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling or emotion in itself if it is aligned to what the scripture says. An instance of that would be if we are broken when we read about God's holiness, about God's mercy, God's grace, God's goodness towards us who are undeserving. Should that provoke emotion? Oh, it should. But it should be aligned to what the scriptures teach, not to what we conceive in our own minds apart from what the word of God says. So this passage today contains a series of quotes from the Old Testament. And Paul is essentially interpreting for us what those Old Testament passages mean. As a quick recap, Paul is talking about a promise that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as Paul is teaching in this letter to the Romans, a question has come up. 
in the way that Paul is addressing the Romans. This literary style is called a diatribe. He's teaching. It's a monologue. But he's anticipating the questions that his audience may have. The question that Paul is dealing with is the following. Okay, Paul, you're telling us that God has made these great promises. In Romans 8, he's told the Romans that the promises of God are for his people, that he has predestined them, that he will call them, that he will save them, and that he will glorify them. That's a done deal. Somebody can say, wait a minute, but why is it then that the children of Israel have gone astray? They're disobedient, and they cannot claim the promises of God. How can that be? Have the promises of God failed? Paul is addressing that very concern, that very anticipated question. The promises that we read in Romans 8 culminated with saying that if you are a true child of God, that all things are going to work together for your good. If you belong to God and if you are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. And then he further goes and writes, teaches what is often known as the golden chain of redemption. Basically, assuring those that are called by God that they will have perseverance in their salvation. So if God makes those promises, why is it that Israel has rejected Jesus? Weren't these promises made for Israel first? That is what Paul is addressing. He's making the point, beginning in chapter 9, that he's grieved, he is saddened that his kinsmen, the Jewish folks, have rejected the Messiah and are not included in that promise. And as grieved as Paul is, he's now proceeding to explain that that's in fact part of God's plan because the true children of Israel, the children of the promise, are not only children according to the flesh, to the lineage, to the blood, but are spiritual descendants of Abraham. So today, Paul takes a short detour here in this text before us in order to address the topic of divine election. God will choose his people. God has chosen his people. It doesn't mean that his promise has failed, but it means that the true Israel, the true people of God, are not those that are descended by the flesh. So then, Paul's main point here for today's text is going to be, God's promise involves his sovereign election. Meaning, that God will accomplish all that he promised to Abraham, that through him the nations of the earth will be blessed, and ultimately the fulfillment of salvation in Jesus. That promise is 100% dependent upon God. It is too important for God to leave that up to any man. Not possible. God takes it upon himself. No human cooperation is needed. No human permission is needed in order for God to accomplish his purpose of election. So let us get to the text. First, we're going to see that there are children of the flesh and there are children of the promise. Those are not the same thing. The first two verses in our text read as follows. Romans 9, 9 and 10. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return. And Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. We'll stop there, okay? Here's the context. <clears throat> Paul, knowing that his audience would have the question, as we said earlier, why aren't the children of Israel enjoying the blessings of God through the promises that he made in Christ? Why is it that the nation of Israel don't get an automatic pass by being descendants of Father Abraham? Well, 
Paul gave us, gave us that answer in Romans 9.8, the verse right prior to that. Let us recap what that says. It says, this means that it is not <coughs> the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of the flesh versus children of the promise. The illustration that Paul gives in these two verses, verses 9 and 10, he takes the genealogy all the way back to Father Abraham. Notably, Abraham had two children. One of those children was according to the flesh. That was Ishmael. When God made the initial promise to Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child, they were not told when, and they were already of advanced age. We are told that Sarah was beyond the age of being able to conceive a child, humanly speaking. As they were getting older, the natural flesh, the human nature says, well, Lord, you promised something. I'm not getting any younger, so I must take it upon myself to do something. In short, this is the mentality of Abraham and Sarah. So what do they do? Hey, Abraham, why don't you go and have a child with a concubine? Seemed like a good idea to Abraham. And he went and had Ishmael, not waiting for God's promises. Ishmael. Now, the true promise, the child of the promise, came later when Sarah conceived Isaac. And that was through whom the promise of God is fulfilled. So Ishmael, child of the flesh, versus Isaac, child of the promise. Now, someone could object in Paul's audience or even today and say, but wait, Ishmael is not of the promise because he was born and of not... Israelite woman. So of course he wouldn't be. Paul knowing that, he takes it a step further. He goes now from Isaac, who was in the lineage of the child of promise. Once he became a grown man, he with Rebekah conceived children, twins, Jacob and Esau. Okay? So going from one generation to the next, right? <clears throat> Jacob and Esau. Out of those two children, only one of those would be in the lineage of the promise of God. The other was not. Paul knows that the Jews take pride in being the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that example, Isaac being the subject father of interest, says that he conceived with the same woman, Rebecca. So here, the argument that Paul is making is, these two are from Jewish, Jewish descendancy. There's no third party involved here. Isaac, Rebecca, <coughs> both in the lineage of Abraham, have twins. And it says Rebecca conceived children by one man. So Paul is leaving no space here. He has an airtight case. And yet, one of those is the child of the flesh, Esau. And the other one is the child of promise, Jacob. At this point, it is irrefutable that all who come from the flesh of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, are all Jewish. Otherwise... Esau, being the father of the Edomites, would necessarily have to be included as children of the promise, and we know that's not true, because the Edomites were idolaters, and they turned against Israel. So Paul there makes the irrefutable case that not all the children of the flesh are children of the promise. There's a distinction. Children of the flesh versus children of the promise. Point number two, why then are some children of the promise versus others are not? 
Why? Verse 11 reads, <clears throat> Though they were not yet born, talking about the twins, Esau and Jacob, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, this is very clear. Now let's break this down a little bit. As we talk about election, that God elects, that God has his people, his remnant. God chooses people for salvation. What does that mean? <clears throat> I grabbed an extract from the Confession of Faith that we abide by, 1689. Chapter 10, first paragraph. So I put it there on the slide so we could take a look at that. It says, in God's appointed time, an ex appointed and acceptable time, sorry, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet, he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Sorry, that's a bit lengthy, but it sums up the way that we see from the scriptures that God calls his elect at an appointed time. He saves them. He gives them a new mind, a new heart, regenerates them so that they are able to understand the things of God. In other words, God draws people to himself not because they've done or will do something good. Unconditional election means that God elects without any prerequisites. None. God appoints a time to draw those people he has chosen to save them. And God made that decree in eternity past. This is why Jesus, in chapter 3 of John, he says, you must be born again. You must be born again. If you want to see, let alone if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Does that change in a person's mind, heart, character that is required to be saved? So election then calls. Election is the means by which God basically calls the shots on who gets saved, when they get saved, how they get saved. Remember it was by his word and his spirit. Later in Romans we're going to see that People are saved when they hear the word of God. That the Holy Spirit does a work in us. In the common denominator, on those who God saves, it is a miracle granted by God alone. By his grace alone, by the work of Christ alone, for his glory alone. We have no part in it except contributing our wickedness and our sin. Now, a common objection to God electing people unconditionally, which I've uh, spoken of recently when we went through chapter 8, is that somebody says, well, sure, God will elect someone, but he's going to look ahead to see who will choose him. And then, like, all right, well, you got my back? Like, I got your back, right? Wrong. That would mean that God needs to look forward to learn, to find out what's going to happen. It's not possible. God has exhaustive knowledge. He cannot learn. Or else he will not be omniscient. And secondly, even if for a moment we would grant the premise that God looks ahead, so to speak, to see who would choose him, this absolutely falls apart when we see in the scriptures the clear fact that nobody, no one, absolutely nobody looks, seeks, looks for God. No one. So that would be impossible. So then if it's not up to man, then who calls the shots as to who is a child of promise? 
in our case, who is ultimately a Christian, who calls the shots? Child of promise versus child of flesh. The child of promise is rescued, whereas the child of the flesh is kept in the rebellion, in perpetuity. The answer cannot be more clear as given by Paul in this verse today. Let's look at it again. Romans 9.11, it says, Though they were not yet born, the twins, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, or another translation said, says that God's purpose of election might stand, might, con might continue, might be what it is going to be, unchanged. And not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul gives us the answer. Child of promise, child of faith, God chooses so that his purpose in election will stand. That's why. Because he so wants to do it that way. That's another way of putting it. Now, from the moment those twins were in the womb, if they were to have an equal start, so to speak, there's no more equality than that. Same parents, same pregnancy, same womb. The only difference is that one came, one was born before the other, right? Within perhaps a matter of seconds or minutes. And yet, God had already called it. One of them was going to be a child according to the promise. The other was going to be a child according to the flesh. Why? Here's the answer. In order that God's purpose of election might stand. So what is God's purpose of election? I could quickly tell you that in three bullets. First, that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham. God will fulfill, has fulfilled his promise to Abraham that through him, through his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Secondly, that God would bring the promised Messiah. The way that all the nations of the world would be blessed is by God's promise that there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. God's promise was fulfilled. And is yet to be culminated in the glorification of his saints. And then thirdly, that God would accomplish his purpose in saving many nations. Meaning the Gentiles. And as we study this text, we cannot help but our humanity that will come out. The issue here is that as sinful, selfish human beings... We often want to take offense at God's holiness, at God's reasoning, at God's sovereignty. Don't we love acting like we are the offended party? Like, oh, I'm offended. Or How could God do that? Excuse me? Because God is God, that's why. And his ways are higher than our ways. Herein lies our huge problem. The only offended party when it comes to the creator and the creature is not the creature. We are not the offended party. We are the offenders. God is the offended party here. He is the holy one. Between the creator and the creatures, there is only one who is holy, and it's not us. And there's only one party that deserves judgment, and it is not God. It is us. To look at a quick recap of what the Bible says about humanity in our natural state, it's right here, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, which is a series of quotes from the, from the Psalms in the Old Testament. It says, <clears throat> as it is written, <clears throat> none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does God think of humanity? That's it. Right there. That's you and me. This is important because unless we understand what our natural state before God is, we will not understand God's holiness. We will not understand the depth and the depravity of our sin and how much judgment we deserve for being rebellious against the holy God. But because God has and will keep his promises, he works by divine election and decrees who will be his children. Because of God's election of who will be his children was not in place and God didn't interfere, get this, no one would be a child of promise. No one. And that's why so that God's purpose and election will stand. That is why they are children of the flesh and children of promise. So that God can save people. That's why. Thirdly, let us consider God's undeserved favor, that is his grace, versus God's justice. The last two verses for our text today. It says, <clears throat> speaking of Rebecca, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. <clears throat> so again, these are quotes from the Old Testament. The first is from Genesis 25, 23, in which Rebecca, as she's pregnant, she literally inquires of God and she says, Lord, I feel that there's this tension in my womb. Like, there's fighting going on. That's essentially what she says to God. And God responds, indeed, yes. In your womb, there's two nations. They are in struggle with each other, and they will remain in struggle with each other. That's where the quote is from. Esau, as I mentioned earlier, he became the father of the Edomites. He rashly sold his inheritance, his birthright, to Jacob, in exchange for what? For a bowl of soup. He was tired after a day of work. He was like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, I'm, I think I'm going to die if I don't eat. Sure, bring it on. You can have my birthright. The Edomites went on to become apostate, worshiping false gods. They hated the Jews all throughout their history. Although it seemed that at times the Edomites would dominate Israel throughout their battles, eventually Israel subdued Edom, as prophesied in Ezekiel 35:15. It reads as follows: As you rejoiced over the inheritance of Israel, because it was desolate, <coughs> so I will deal with you. <coughs> you shall be desolate, Mount Seir and all Edom, all of it then they will know that I am the Lord. So there it is. God decreed that the older would serve the younger. Israel eventually subdued Edom. <clears throat> the second quote is from Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. The context there is that God is declaring his love to Israel. He's telling Israel, I have loved you. To which Israel, the children of Israel, in their classic rebellious way, they turn back to God and say, really? How have you loved us? You don't love us. Their ingratitude to the love of God. To which then God reminds them how he has shown them favor. How he has shown them grace. While to Esau, he let Esau reap the consequences of his own sin to him and his descendants. He has let them go on with their disobedience and idolatry and reap the consequence of it, remaining in God's judgment. But to Israel, 
He didn't do that. He had mercy, grace, favor with Israel. So with that short background, let's address the obvious now. How can God say he loved Jacob but hated Esau? Like, is, is that really who God is? Like, he, he hates Esau? He loves Jacob? Now, God decided this before these two were born. Each would be the head of a nation. The Edomites for Esau. Israel for Jacob. Let's consider each of them. Esau. Clearly, a man given to the flesh. That, that's how he's depicted in the scriptures. He traded his right as a firstborn, which is a very significant blessing from God. He traded that for a meal. He went on to be the father of a nation of idolaters, of people who go after the flesh. There's a quick application here, twofold. First, for us, consider Esau's desire to take the thing that would fulfill him right then and there. Like right now. Instant gratification. My friends, we live in an age of instant gratification. Instagram. Amazon Prime. Like I, I, we actually ordered something the other day. It came on the same day. Instant. Like right now. And we get used to that kind of lifestyle, right? So that if there ever comes a time when I cannot have it right now, then... I am upset. I am unfulfilled. The desire to take ownership of that very thing, which is going to fulfill my flesh in some way, right now. Secondly, we see in Esau the harsh, the rash making of commitments without counting the cost. Please let this sink in. Esau's unwise rash commitment with his shrewd sibling was binding. There was none of this, well, you know what, I wasn't in my right mind when I made that commitment, so, or, I, you know, I had crossed my fingers behind my back, so it was, nope. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. God honored the commitment that Esau made with his conniver brother. And he got the shorter end of the stick. Not only did it have lifelong consequences, Esau's rash commitment had eternal consequences. The narrative says that when Esau realized what he had done, because he did realize what he had done, this rough, manly man cried and wept bitterly. Father, don't you have a blessing for me too, please? Too late. He squandered it. He was not faithful with what God had given him. And he wept loudly and uncontrollably. My friends, don't we also make rash commitments without counting the cost? Don't we? We are no different than Esau. May this be a call for us to repent of those rash commitments because they do have lifelong consequences and in Esau's case, eternal consequences. Let us consider Jacob. Clearly, right, in opposition to Esau, a holy man, Jacob? <laughs> Not by, no. Not by a long shot. From the moment of his birth, Jacob was a heel grabber. He grabbed his brother by the heel. And we are told that Jacob himself was a deceiver. He was a conniver. He was shrewd. He took the birthright from his brother. Now, did Jacob do it innocently, like not knowing that this was going to have Massive consequences? No, he knew. He knew perfectly well what he was doing. So was then Jacob doing unto others as he wished others do unto him? No. He 
He was up to no good. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father so that he would give him this blessing. And we see the cry of complaint and revolt from Esau in Genesis 27, 36, when Esau said the following, is he, Jacob, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So I was looking at some commentaries there. There's a play on words in the Hebrew where he says, is he not rightly named deceiver? For he has deceived me these two times. Jacob was a deceiver. And this blessing that is stole from his brother is a blessing in the Old Testament of a father speaking that blessing. is like a prophecy speaking that over their children. Who is directly a blessing from God. And the father is used to issue that blessing. We see that later when Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in Genesis 48. <coughs> and also, when the, Jacob also blessed the 12, his 12 sons in Genesis 49. So in essence, Isaac's blessing on Jacob was actually a blessing directly from God. And it was the father being used to give that blessing to his children. Now, in Jacob's case, can God bless even through deceit? Well, in the account of Genesis, the answer is yes. God blessed Jacob. But beware. This blessing was in spite of, not because of the deception. God still accomplished his purpose through Jacob's evil. Because we know, at least from another clear example there in Genesis later on, that God works through the evil of men to accomplish his purposes. And yet he doesn't force men to do evil. The case I'm mentioning here is how Joseph was sold by his evil brothers. Like, did God force them? No, they wanted to sell their brothers. They were evil in mind and heart. What does Genesis 50, 20 say? As for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God used that evil in order to save people. So then does that make Joseph's brother brothers innocent of sin? No, they're guilty. So then similarly, Jacob... Is he innocent of being a deceiver? <clears throat> no. He's not. He's equally guilty. And interestingly enough, that's why I often say that God has a sense of humor. Jacob kind of got paid with that same coin later with his father-in-law, Laban. Mm -hmm. He deceived him, right? So it was like a hustler hustling a hustler. And Jacob didn't like it. Then he had something to complain about. But he was just getting a taste of his own medicine. So in short, we saw the flaws of Esau. Here we see the flaws of Jacob. And I remind us, in a sense, we are not better than Jacob either. We were right there. My friends, we need to realize something at this point. There was zero merit for Jacob to be loved by God. Zero merit. As a matter of fact, he had a balance of inequity against him. Therefore, when we come to this verse, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, I propose to you the following. We should not be perplexed or surprised by the fact that God hated Esau. Rather, we should be blown away that God loved Jacob. See that? Because both of them were worthy of judgment. And yet God chooses to show favor to one of them. 
and let the other one remain in judgment. The key here is this. If there was to be justice, God should condemn both Esau and Jacob equally. Oh, but thanks be to God that he is a God of mercy, of grace, of love. While he's not obligated to love anyone because he's a holy God and we are all sinners. Thanks be to God that he's compassionate and loving and he chooses to love some. This is a great mystery. Let us not pretend to know how it all works, but what we do know, and we must remain faithful to what the scriptures teach, is that God reserves the right to choose who he will love. He has decreed it and is part of his divine plan of election so that his purpose will stand. And us, most of us in this room are Gentiles. This is how we get grafted in. This is how through faith, just like Abraham was justified by faith, that is how we are justified. And that's how we become children of promise. Let us take a quick look at some verses in the New Testament that reveal that to us plainly. Galatians 4.28, it says, Now you, Galatians, were primarily a Gentile church. It says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac are children of promise. My brethren at Acts Reformed Church, I tell you, brothers, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. How great is that? John 1, <coughs> John 1, <coughs> verses 12 and 13. What does that say? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some stop there. Aha, see, like I received him. Keep going. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you did receive him, it's because it was granted to you to do so by the will of God. Lastly, <coughs> First Timothy <coughs> chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10. It says, God, speaking of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, with which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How glorious is that? Through being children of the promise, being grafted in, we are beneficiaries of the fact that Jesus Christ straight up abolished death. Oh, how great is that? That is the great promise of hope for the children of promise. So let's wrap this up. Some final thoughts of reflection from today's text. A lot of us might be left asking this. So what's up? Like, am I elect? How does it all work? My friend, let me tell you this. That's not a question for us to ask. A better question is, do you believe the gospel? The call for every human being is to repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The question is not in my elect. Consider the words of Jesus when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary, are laboring, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The question is, do you need that? Oh, I know I do. Oh, I need it. Every day I need it. I depend on it. I go to Jesus for rest. Physical, spiritual, emotional, theological. I need that rest. Do you need that rest? <clears throat> and while there's this paradox of God's election and his decree versus the responsibility of men to respond, 
We do not know the mind of God. We do not know what his divine decrees are. But we do know what is revealed in scripture when it comes to the call to repent and believe. Repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are some signs that perhaps we are children of the promise? There should be some signs, right? What are some of those? First, are you being drawn by God? Do you begin to understand the things of God? Do you begin to be drawn to learn to be discipled? And these things start to make sense. My friend, if that's you, that's a great sign. That's a glorious sign. Or perhaps, have you realized that the world has nothing for you? The world cannot fulfill you? And you turn out empty again and again and again? And now you're realizing, I am only fulfilled in Christ. Oh, my friend, that's a great sign. Are you convicted of sin? When your old ways creep up, does something in your conscience, in your heart tell you that's wrong? You shouldn't do that. Oh, that's a great sign. Yes. And then after that conviction, do you hate your sin? Like, I want to turn from it. God hates that sin. I hate that sin. And that's not for me. I want to turn from it. That's a good sign, if so. And then, do you have a changed life? Is there any change? Do you show fruit in your life? If you do, that's a good sign. So let us not ask, well then am I elect or is my children elect? No. Focus on repenting and believing and showing fruit. Secondly, Know that God shows mercy. Nobody's worthy of God's love. God does not owe favor to anyone. And he would be perfectly righteous to not show favor to anybody and send everybody to hell. God would be justified in doing so. As we learn about Esau and Jacob today, a brief portrait of, of their life, in like manner, if my sins, if my depravity was on display for you to see in this screen, you would quickly see and conclude that not only Esau and Jacob were horrible sinners, but that Pastor Gerardo is too. And is worthy of God's wrath. But thanks be to God that he shows mercy. And my friends... The same applies to each of you. If your depravity was on display, you would quickly realize that you too are not worthy of God's love. But thanks be to God that he shows mercy. And that while we were yet sinners, God died for us. We cannot understand the depth of such wonderful news until we first realize how lost and deserving of God's wrath we are. Until we realize that when God says, Esau I hated, but Jacob I love, it is not the hatred that should perplex us. But how could he love Jacob? And then lastly, when we realize these things, we have a call to humility, to joy, and to obedience. To humility first by realizing that we are not in control of how God works. And we are nobodies to question God in his sovereign work of election. If any one of us here is a Christian and is a true Christian and we're persevering in our faith, it is because God decreed it so and he's holding us and he is carrying us through, not because he saw anything good in you or me. We are called to joy because this truth of being children of promise is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That promise, just as we saw in Galatians 4.28, is for us. We too are children of promise, just like Isaac was. 
That's true for us today. And then we're called to obedience. Why? Twofold. We're called to holy living. We cannot live in perpetual sin, in a lifestyle of sin, without repentance, if we are indeed child, a child of promise. Those are not compatible. We must be holy. We must pursue holy living in the path of sanctification. doesn't mean that we don't sin, but it does mean that we are in perseverance. We are becoming more and more like Christ. That when we look back a week, a month, a year, a decade, we could say, by God's grace, he has changed me. Holy living. And the second part of that obedience, I'll close with this, is the obedience to preaching and sharing the gospel. We do not know who God's elect are. That is not our business. It's not our responsibility. We have a responsibility to preach, to be good witnesses, and to call people to repentance and trust in Christ. Our responsibility to speak, the responsibility to hear, to repent and believe. Let us take joy in that, my brothers and sisters. That the work of salvation is not of man, but of Christ. And because that is so, it works. If it was of us, we would be doomed. <clears throat> Let us give thanks and a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, <coughs> we thank you that indeed salvation is a work of God. It is your job. It is your work. And because it is so, Salvation is accomplished. Lord, thank you for the mystery, the great mystery of divine election, which you decreed before the foundations of the earth to save certain people. Lord, may you draw us to you. May you grant us belief and repentance on a daily basis so that we could be partakers of the promises of the children of promise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.